Across the United States, more than one million of our family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and complete strangers are now gone, ripped from our lives by an unsparing pandemic that has battered us for two full years. We are justifiably exhausted, but amid the desperate sprint to move on and put the trauma of this nightmare behind us, we are also at risk of making a tragic and avoidable mistake. As a nation, we are failing to process the grief and loss that surrounds us. We have a responsibility to remember the lost. That was Alex Goldstein reading from his first opinion essay, The Faces of COVID. Alex is the founder and CEO of 90 West, a Boston area strategic communications company, and the founder of the Faces of COVID Twitter feed. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT. More than ever before, patients are seeking a more consistent healthcare experience tailored to their exact needs. I'm joined by Peter Shulam, MD, PhD, Global Head of Preclinical, Clinical, and Medical Affairs at Johnson & Johnson MedTech to discuss how technology is helping deliver on this vision. Thank you, Angus. At Johnson & Johnson, we are driven to improve surgical outcomes and elevate the standard of care globally. An example of how we're tackling this is by working to combine robotics, advanced imaging, and digitally enabled instruments all on a connected digital ecosystem so we can generate, aggregate, and process data. Data analytics will provide valuable insights and predictions to help augment surgical skill and enhance surgical judgment with the goal of improving outcomes and reducing surgeon variability. Think of an airplane pilot who is surrounded by technology within the cockpit that assists in the takeoff, flying, and landing of that plane. Our vision is to create a surgical cockpit with technology that will provide guidance and navigation to the surgeon to yield a more consistent performance and outcome. As this capability expands, patients could have comparable surgical outcomes no matter where they are in the world. The possibilities are endless. Thank you, Peter. Visit jnjmedtech.com to learn more. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. I really appreciate your taking the time to join me today, Alex. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. It's probably been a busy week for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, this milestone is, in some ways, it feels like a really critical point of reflection, but I think it's also a reminder of how little reflection we've done on so many of these other milestones. Um, 500,000, 100,000, 1,000 uh, even. And so, you know, I'm grateful for this opportunity to try to bring the attention back uh, to the pandemic at the time when it sometimes feels like we've moved on. That moving on is, uh, it's perplexing and premature. Without question. I mean, not only uh, is there so much trauma and loss to process from the last two years, but the reality is that the pandemic is still very much with us. Uh, people are still dying. And, um, you know, I just posted a story yesterday on Faces of COVID of someone who died a week ago. Um, so it's not as if uh, the platform, which is, of course, set up to 
give people the opportunity to share the stories of the loved ones uh, that they've lost is backwards looking. This is very much still happening and still with us. And the submissions uh, are a reflection of that. So can you paint for listeners a word picture of what Faces of COVID is? Sure. Faces of COVID is a platform uh, Twitter channel that I set up um, at the start of the pandemic. Uh, as many folks experienced the start of the pandemic, a lot of the public health messaging was understandably very much grounded in data. It was about uh, hospitalizations and ventilators and uh, ultimately deaths. And while those were vital statistics that I think continue to be an important part of how we tell the public health story, um, it really occurred to me at the time that what was missing was the human face behind those statistics and uh, how necessary it is to feel, fully understand what's happening out there and to ground ourselves in the reality of this pandemic uh, is we really need to be able to know who those people were, that they were more than just a statistic, that they had textured, beautiful lives and families who loved them and coworkers who counted on them and communities who relied upon them. And uh, so Faces of COVID was set up as a place to bear witness. It is uh, six or seven times a day. I share stories of individual people who have lost their lives to the pandemic. Uh, most of the stories are submitted directly from family members uh, who want to see their loved one remembered in this way. Um, but also uh, some of them come from my own research uh, of you know, stories across the country of people that we've lost. And I, I've really only missed a couple of days um, in the last two years of doing it. It's become a really sort of vital ritual in my life because I don't think we can tell these stories enough. I think uh, we're only just beginning to wrap our arms around what one million losses uh, look like in this country. And we need to put a name and a face to them. Is there an emotional toll on you for running this feed? Yeah, I think... You know, there's no question that waking up every single day, and it's usually the first thing I do each day, there's a toll of bearing witness that can make you feel like this is just an interminable um, nightmare that we're in, but it's also the reality. And so what I, uh, my, my, my reaction to that question is typically that um, I would rather be grounded in the reality of what is happening in the extent of these losses than I would be telling myself a story that it is over uh, and that helps me sleep better, right? You know, this is um, the being in touch with that reality, I think has actually helped me process this pandemic um, in, a, in a helpful way and um, hopefully is providing that for others as well. And it's, it sounds like it's also kept you in the reality of the situation rather than the myth of it. Exactly. Yeah. There's, you know, unquestionably the last couple of months have been somewhat disembodying. It feels as though the world outside my window is moving on and yet my mailbox continues to fill up with stories of those who are dying. And it's hard to reconcile that sometimes. And I think that, you know, faces of COVID putting these stories out there in a very, very public way, and not to mention on one of the most sort of historically toxic platforms. You know, Twitter is not exactly known for a place where people come for compassion and kindness and, uh, you know, warmth. And yet um, it has been mostly left alone by the trolls and treated as uh, somebody called it the other day, a digital graveyard. And I actually think that's quite poignant because um, you would not uh, go into a cemetery and, um, you know, treat people with disrespect and, uh, Faces of COVID has become a place where people who have never met each other um, can come together and just say to each other, I'm sorry for what you've lost. I'm sorry that this person is 
no longer with us. So it seems like it might help people in two different ways. It, 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 it helps people who are reading as well as people who are sending you information about their loved ones. It sounds like it's a, a, like a two-way street in a sense. Yeah, it taught me a lot about what people have endured uh, in their losses in this pandemic because it was a reminder to me that for so many people, the way in which they said goodbye, for example, may have been over Zoom or FaceTime. They may not have been able to be in the room. And for many, even more families, the reality was that the traditional funerals or rituals that would accompany uh, losing a loved one, like the funeral or the shiva, many of those rituals were also stripped away. And that the isolation of COVID actually compounded the pain uh, of saying goodbye because they couldn't do it in community the way many people would have wanted to. By the way, this is something I personally experienced during the pandemic. Uh, my father died of prostate cancer on July 29th of this past summer. And my dad was a really special guy. He deserved a 500-person send-off in the synagogue, which is exactly what he would have wanted. And instead, it was just a few of us around his uh, grave in the cemetery because it wasn't safe. The Delta wave had just really taken off. And so um, I also acknowledge that this is much bigger than just people have lost something, someone to COVID, that the way in which we mourn has had to change as a result of this pandemic. And so suddenly a very public uh, you know, sharing of a story on a Twitter feed actually takes on some new significance because it may be for many of these families, and I've heard this directly from them, one of the few opportunities where they actually are receiving public condolences uh, from people that maybe they haven't met before. And um, you know that the pandemic has certainly uh, underscored the ways in which we are not trusting uh, of each other and um, you know, the sort of fractured nature of our society right now. And having strangers tell you they're sorry uh, and, you know, put a digital hand on your shoulder, you know, actually carries some significance in this moment because it runs so contrary to, I think, what so many people have experienced in our civic space over the last couple of years. And seeing all the, you know, all the bad stuff, all the trolls on Twitter, I mean, that gets reinforced um, all the time. So, so condolence and people saying, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry to hear about your dad and the experience that you and your family had to go in, which was a mirror of what so many families in the United States have had to go through in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I, uh, it has still mystified me uh, in a, the best way possible how little of that trolling has actually taken place on this platform and that people have respected it. Um, that's not to say it's been without trolls. You know, there were folks in the beginning who said, you know, these stories are fake. Uh, the uh. pandemic is a hoax. Um, there was also a fair amount of folks who were sort of antagonistic of any story that was shared on the platform where their presumption was that, that person had been unvaccinated. Um, the There was a brief moment where I somehow got in the crosshairs of some uh, fairly aggressively anti-Semitic folks who started using the submission form to submit um, like Nazi war generals and stuff to me, but uh, the with with those ex those were the outliers. Um, the vast majority of the engagement and interaction with these stories has been compassionate and kind and gracious. Faces of COVID has remembered what feels like a real snapshot of Americans: parents, mothers, fathers, grandparents, daughters, sons, Special Olympians, healthcare workers, barbers, teachers, bus drivers, Holocaust survivors. 
Do you know how many people that have been memorialized or remembered on the platform so far? I don't have the exact number, but we're over 7,000 now. Um, wow. Which is both a huge number in terms of the work that has gone into it, but also sort of profoundly less than uh, well under 1% of the losses in this country alone. And so um, the it, it took me two years to get to 7,000 and just knowing how many more of those stories are out there uh, and they keep coming in every single day. And, you know, what, what's interesting is a lot of folks are just now submitting stories from the beginning of the pandemic because it, they, it hasn't felt like they're ready. Uh, and there's something that makes it more real and more final when um, it's shared in this kind of venue. And so I'm still getting stories from March and April and May of 2020, in addition uh, to, to more recent ones. Wow. So on a practical note, if someone had a story for you, how would they get it to you? Yeah. So uh, if you go to Faces of COVID on Twitter, um, you can send us a message. I originally had had a submission form that was publicly available, but because of some of the uh, spam that was coming through, um, we just now ask for folks to send us a message. Um, so you can message me directly through the, the Faces of COVID Twitter handle, and I can share the link to submit, and uh, you're able to share all the information and make sure that I get it accurate. You can upload a photo uh, that's your sort of desired photo to have for that post, and I'm usually able to uh, turn them around within a couple of days. So is this a one-man show, or do you have helpers on your journey here? <laughs> I use the royal we, uh, but it is just me. Uh, I... My helpers are my dog and my wife who tolerate this as a, you know, daily practice. Um, you know, every, I've had some help from volunteers here and there who have uh, been kind enough to pitch in um, when I've needed a little bit of backup. Uh, but it has uh, it has just been me. I often use the tired joke when describing my role at First Opinion that there are three of us, me, myself and I, um, to make it seem a little bigger. But. I, I, I understand what you're um, what you're doing here. When I say we, uh, I say, right. that, uh, but, it, yeah, but people say, oh, how many people on your team? And I say, oh, it's just. Did did you ever feel like using Faces of COVID as a platform for kind of getting out some of your thoughts on what America needs to do? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it has given me that because the Faces of COVID has gotten a sort of enough attention from um media folks that it give it does give me a platform to talk about a lot of these issues uh, in the press that I don't I certainly wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, I would also say that the I've, I've really taken pains to make faces of COVID a place where we're not going to default into standard political polarization, where the you don't your, your party affiliation uh, is can be checked at the door and it's not a litmus test for whether or not you are able to share your loved one's story. Um, at the same time, Faces of COVID is and ought to be an accountability tool. And I, I can scream uh, at the top of my lungs on my roof about uh, where we need to find accountability for all the failures, uh, systemic and otherwise, that led to this moment. Um, but I think they are self-evident in the stories themselves. And that's why I think the best argument I can make is to center those stories because you know what I've learned is that if I want to default to my talking points about the pandemic, of which I feel very strongly about them, and I have many, I am speaking to my own people, uh, people who mostly already agree with me. Faces of COVID, I can guarantee you that there is a 
extremely wide spectrum of people who share these stories and engage with them that totally defies the kind of standard polarization that we come to expect in this moment. And that's one of its strengths. And I don't want it to be a place where it feels like only one, one political background um, can participate because that is not who needs to be convinced. We don't need to spend more time talking to each other about all the precautions we take. We need to widen that conversation for more people to just on a basic human level see their role and responsibility here. And I think the pandemic has taught us that um, shaming people has limited uh, band, you know, effect. It, it, it maybe helps with a couple folks uh, on the margins, but it can actually do more harm than good. Right. This seems to be uh, hopefully a portal to just let more people in to that conversation through the most basic human emotion, which is grief. So what are some of the stories? Do you have, have any stories really stuck with you that maybe that you're surprised at or can share? You know, I, I think every story, and I, it sounds trite, but every single story sticks with me in some way. And I, and I have... I have a pretty good memory to begin with. And my recall when somebody reaches out to me and says, you shared my dad's story. And I say, what was your dad's name? Like I can usually actually see their face, wow. uh, which um, has been uh, sort of a special part of, you know, my own ability to archive some of this, but I, it's usually certain aspects of stories that kind of punch you in the gut. Sometimes it is just the photo that the family shares. Uh, or they, the details about their lives that are just like so unique to that person that you know that they like, I, I say to people sometimes that I want you to, when you submit a story, you should give me something that you will know who it was, even if I didn't have the name or the photo, because hmm. that was just something that made them who they were. There was a, a post that was, uh, somebody sent in their story a couple of days ago about their father. And the quote that was given to me was that he really thought American food was terrible and that what he would only eat Brazilian steak. And <laughs> I, you know, I love that. Like that's, that's such a window, uh, however brief into who that person was. Um, you know, sometimes uh, the stories that stick with me the most are the ones that are just the injustice of it is just so galling. And, and lately, the stories that have really been sticking with me are those of immunocompromised individuals who, well vaccinated, um, weren't able to, uh, you know, evade this virus and it, and it took their lives. And these are people who did everything right from a public health perspective. And still, uh, you know, the consequences of a country that really hasn't uh, wrapped its arms around what the appropriate precautions are to contain this. And, and I think you can make the argument in the last couple months has sort of given up. Uh, those stories are particularly tragic because these are the people we talk about when we say it's not about you. If you are healthy and you are, um, you know, not worried about having a bad outcome, that is great. But you also have a responsibility to those who uh, are immunocompromised and um, could have a bad outcome. And I think that's part of what Faces of COVID is really all about, which is it's not about the individual surviving the pandemic. It is about looking in the mirror at uh, ourselves and asking what is our responsibility to other people and uh, to what does it mean to be a part of a community? And um, I think if we can see ourselves in some of these stories, uh, that empathy, that experience of empathy can actually help be the, the solution. Do you ever find yourself opening the refrigerator or walking the dog and a, one of the stories hits you? Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's oftentimes 
I'll, I'll see something that reminds me of something from one of those stories uh, or huh. somebody, there was a story the other day, the a woman's obituary had very poignantly listed every, the name of every single cat that she had throughout her <laughs> life. And they were some of the wildest names, like it, a really you know memorable names. And, you know, I was on a zoom uh, with um, my, my coworkers and they were talking about their cats. And I was like, I need to tell you about this person because you know, she belongs in our cat conversation. She should be a part of this moment with us. And so it's oftentimes very mundane, uh, you know, details, but you know, that's kind of one of the things that I've learned from doing faces of COVID it's been such a reminder in a very tragic way that people live really interesting, beautiful textured lives. And in a certain neighborhood of Detroit, the barber who died of COVID is basically the mayor of that block. Hmm. And that person's story is everything in that community. And every single person in that community knows who they are. And so, you know, well, I will never have met that person and may never understand that corner uh, in, in Detroit. I think that it is a reminder that the cascading consequences of this level of loss has really profound implications at the hyper-local level that I, I don't even think we've really wrapped our arms around. I think we're just beginning to process what that all means. Now, when you started Faces of COVID, the disease was just beginning to tear through big cities and rural areas and regions of the country, the Sun Belt and South Dakota. Terrible though it seemed then, did you have any inkling at we might hit this very grim milestone of a million deaths, which is kind of officially being marked this week, but some people say actually happened in December? Yeah. And I, I believe that telling of the story more than I do that. Uh, I, I think this is the most conservative estimate possible is that we just, you know, passed a million. And I think that's because those are confirmed deaths and don't right. include, um, you know, the, the very many that could also be included that were probable. I, yeah, you know, when I started faces of COVID when the pandemic began, I remember having many conversations uh, about the pandemic and how long it would last. And I remember saying, this could be really bad. This could last two or three months. And, uh, you know, to be here two years plus, um, just realizing how naive and how little understanding I even had of what a pandemic was and what a global pandemic looks like, uh, you know, this is obviously completely um, defied any of my expectations as to how long this would be going on and how we would be two years and, you know, two months later into it and still be so out of control and seemingly, I mean, I, I will be quite honest. I know more people in my life who have COVID right now than at any point I can recall in the pandemic. Really? And uh, without question, this is, I literally had two meetings canceled today because the folks who were supposed to be on the meetings have COVID now. This notion of, well, if I'm safe, it's not happening. Um, has has taken hold to some extent, but I think it's the you know th there's a much grimmer reality. As with the people who just want to quote move on from COVID, are there people saying to you, or are you hearing, Alex, come on, just move on, guy. You know uh, we you know we're kind of tired of hearing all about all these deaths. Yeah, I, I I get a little bit of that, and by the way, I also understand it. Like I, I the thing is I. I know that people are tired and exhausted and just want so badly to get some normalcy back into their life. Uh, I think that most people know, even if they say we got to move on, I think most people know deep down inside that it's still here and that mm. there's still risk. And 
but I think it's like that public posture, like I can will it into being that if I say we got to move on, like maybe we actually can move on. Sometimes you don't realize the damage you're doing with that kind of message, because mm. there are, if you are someone who has lost your loved one and had your total, you know, your entire life upended and your world doesn't look anything like what it used to, uh, to hear people say, get over it already mm. is it's just, it's, it's really, really hurtful. And I hear this all the time from families who have lost somebody that they just can't believe the things that people say to them. Like, mm. yeah, well, you know, got to buck up and move on. And they're like, well, I just lost my husband in 30 years and I want to stay safe. And people are treating me like I'm crazy. The other consequence of that let's move on <clears throat> would be the failure to learn the lessons that this pandemic can teach us about the next crisis, whether it is another pandemic, whether it's climate change. Um, there are vital lessons to be learned right now that I think that we are uh, at risk of failing to learn by that sprint to move on. And that's why telling these stories can try to get us to sit a little bit longer with this and ask ourselves some questions. We don't like to ask the hard questions, do we? No, I mean, I, it's actually, I'm glad you said that. I think that I have observed a discomfort in asking ourselves difficult questions, but also a discomfort in sitting with painful stuff. It's, it's hard to sit with these stories. Uh, mm. It is uncomfortable to ask ourselves, um, what if it was me? And what if it was my loved one? Or, and I think probably one of the most important questions is to ask ourselves the really hard question that sort of is a real affront to the kind of classic American exceptionalism, which is how did the United States of America, one of the most resource rich countries on the planet, find itself in the top 15 for the worst per capita death rate to this pandemic. That didn't happen by accident. There are decades of decision-making that led to certain communities in particular to be more profoundly affected by this environmental injustice, medical racism, like the sort of list goes on and on and on. And we need to ask ourselves how we let this happen. You know, the cynic in me would say the U.S. has worked very hard to get to this place. I mean, we've spent, we have the highest per capita healthcare spending and one of the worst healthcare systems of any developed country. So, you know, we've come by this honestly. Right, right. No, without question. And, you know, and I, I also acknowledge that the progress on the vaccine is one of the great sort of medical accomplishments of this era. I mean, Huge. it's extraordinary. And, um, and yet here we are. And so I, I think the, it is, I think it's possible. And I think this is important when I uh, talk to people about the pandemic is that we have to be able to hold a couple different truths at the same time, that we want them to be contradictory of each other, but they're not, um, you know, these things can all be true. And the biggest missed hmm. opportunity of this pandemic would be to just not ask ourselves some questions to just let's get out of this. Let's move on. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Uh, and without that reflection, uh, you know, I think we are setting ourselves up to relive this again in some other context in the coming years. Scary thought. You know, at some point, federal and global public health officials will declare that the pandemic is over. That, of course, won't mean that COVID-19 is over. It's likely to be with us for a long time, meaning people will continue to die from it. Will you keep faces of COVID going? Yeah, my 
belief in terms of the future of the platform is that so long as there are families who would find meaning in seeing their loved one remembered in this way, that I want it to be there for them um, to do that. I also think that these stories are all additive. Like, I, I don't feel like you reach a point where telling these stories becomes like not really necessary anymore. I think that um, at least for the foreseeable future, these are vital stories in the history of this pandemic. And the more of them that are shared, the it, I can't see the downside of what telling those stories would do in terms of the public conversation about this and implications for public health. What I think about most is where else could this live? How else could this live? And if any of your listeners uh, have ideas for me, I'm always eager to hear them. You know, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds a little bit like you might be saying that the country as a whole or our leadership isn't really doing enough to recognize and memorialize this incomprehensible loss. I have nothing but respect for how profoundly challenging an environment this is to lead at all. Uh, and so I, the, I'm always hesitant to Monday morning quarterback or uh, backseat drive to people in these very, very intense environments trying to lead through a crisis. What I will say is that there's just no question in my mind that what we have done to date to memorialize and remember people who died from this pandemic has been gravely insufficient. And uh, part of that, I think, is because we need either a government or very authoritative uh, sort of NGO or otherwise space to own it. Um, to really want to do it. And I think there's some really powerful work happening at the grassroots level. Uh, there's a couple of organizations marked by COVID is one of them, COVID Survivors for Change, that are really trying to create this space and, and they're doing really admirable work. Because here's the thing, what, what, what the families will tell you is they want this and need this. And that's who we should be listening to, right? Uh -huh. These are the people most impacted by what has happened. And they're saying, where is it? I think we misjudge often in this country how people want to be treated when they lose someone. Hmm. I think we think that people just want quiet and peace with their grief and don't want to be bothered about it and don't want to talk. Uh, what I have found overwhelmingly from this experience is the exact opposite. People are desperate and begging to be asked who they're mother or father or brother and sister, in some cases their child, who they were and what kind of life did they live and what goodness did they bring into the world. And that's really what we're talking about here is being willing to ask people and giving them the space to do that. Uh, and that is something that I think our government can actively participate in. But I think sometimes we misjudge and think, well, people don't people don't want to be bothered with, you know, asking them to emote on demand or something like that about their loved one. And I get that. And I'm sure for some people that's true, but I think that people are looking for it because in some ways, how uniquely isolating this pandemic has been, this is not nine 11 where a firefighter funeral was on TV every single morning live. And you could sit in your living room and you could cry alongside people through that entire tragedy. You have your, strip down funeral or wake and then what you're back home and your ability to do this in any kind of communal way is not available and so i think people are desperate for that and i think they want that um but someone's got to take the initiative uh rather than just sort of regular 
folks in their day-to-day jobs. You know, you're reminding me of, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, a very Irish Catholic neighborhood. And I went to a gajillion wakes with my parents as a kid. And the wake is all about, it's almost, it's like sitting Shiva. The wake is all about telling stories. And so this is kind of an online wake in a sense that you've created and allowed people to participate in. Yeah. And I also think about uh, in, in Judaism, when you lose someone, to your point, much like the wake, you convene people, you get wrapped up in community and you sit and you tell stories and you cry and you laugh. Um, you also, when you visit somebody's grave, you leave a stone on top of the grave. And there's a couple sort of spiritual implications for that. Um, one of which is to show that you were there and right. that you were present. And, uh, you know, I look at, I look through the comments of all these faces of COVID posts and they're oftentimes there's dozens, if not hundreds of comments on these stories. And they're really simple. It might be a heart emoji or a couple words of I'm so sorry, but that is what people are doing. They are showing that they were there and that they paid their respects. And uh, it is very, very clear to me from my interactions with the thousand, couple thousand family members who have sent stories directly, they read every single one of those. Mm. Like they literally, one, one woman told me, that after she saw the post go up and she saw all the reactions, she said, my family, none of, none of them are on Twitter. So I printed out the replies and I read them the replies and how healing that felt. How sweet. Right? You know, and, and that is, uh, I think, you know, what Faces of COVID has sort of accidentally fallen into the role of is creating space for people to do that together in a digital environment, because we don't have a lot of other options. In your essay, you listed many reasons to remember people who died of COVID-19. And I'm going to quote you on one of them here. You wrote that it's important to remember people because empathy in policy and practice will be our way out of this pandemic. We tell their stories because doing so shows our commitment to restoring a compassionate, empathetic society that lifts up everyone. It's how we can start finally to pick up the pieces. Alex, thank you for giving people an opportunity to share their stories of loved ones and friends and neighbors whose whose lives have been cut short by COVID-19 and helping us all pick up the pieces. Thank you so much for uh, helping me tell that story and for giving me a platform today to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.
I was getting a little teary there at the end. Yeah, me too.